So we began our worship service hearing just a little bit about that story of Pentecost. It's a little bit more familiar to us. It's where God's Spirit comes upon the disciples 50 days after Easter, ushered in with this rush of a great wind and tongues of fire. And it's probably this, the story that we all expect to hear on today, which is Pentecost Sunday. But in the Gospel of John, the giving of the Holy Spirit looks very, very different. The disciples received the gift of God's Spirit on the evening of Easter, and it's a very different experience. Okay. So we're going to hear the story from John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. So this is John's version of the giving of the Holy Spirit. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After this he said, or after this he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. They realized that was who was standing before them. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he'd said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. We'll talk about that in a minute. But a word of God that is still speaking, thanks be to God. So if Pentecost did not often fall on or right around Memorial Day weekend, it would be a much bigger day in the life of the church. It is traditionally considered the birthday of the church, the day Again, the Spirit was given to the church, the Spirit of the risen Christ came upon the disciples, and they were transformed from a group of friends hiding behind locked doors to a bold and fearless community of faith out in the world, a church. Now, some of you know that the session has been meeting several times over the past couple months, in addition to our regular meetings, to ask, what does it mean to be a church that's filled with God's Spirit? It's actually a question we ask on a fairly regular basis, um, not necessarily adding more meetings, uh, because a session is responsible for the overall direction and mission of the church, and we want to always be checking in. Is what we are doing in line with God's intent? And so, where is the Spirit sending us or leading us? In the course of my over 30 years of ministry, I have worked with many churches in asking this question, especially when I served as an interim of several churches, but uh, also just as a pastor and as a consultant for several churches. And often the first thing the session wants to do is, we got to write a new mission statement, or we need to look at the mission statement that we have had, and we, we need to, to fine-tune that and update it and change it. Maybe it's been a few years since they've done that. Maybe it's been a few decades since they've done that. Maybe they forgot the last time they've done that. And a lot of churches, you ask them what their mission statement is, and they have to dig out a binder and dust it off, and a lot of us don't memorize it. My advice to the churches has always been, and it's my same advice to this church as well, don't waste your time. Do not waste your time trying to craft this beautiful mission statement for the church because you've already been given a mission. It's not your job to come up with your own. 
Christ has already given you your mission. Christ sends us into the world to give or withhold forgiveness. It's right there in the Bible. That's the mission that in the Gospel of John we're given. It's not what you expected me to say, is it? Bet you didn't know you had that kind of power either. Well, you do. And you don't. I think we all know churches that practice that mission in such a way that they condemn people for who they are, or they, they set standards for what is required for someone to uh, deserve or prove themselves worthy of forgiveness and being with God for eternity. That's actually not what this is about. Churches that practice it that way, I'm going to be bold enough to say are doing exactly the opposite of what this is about. You see, Jesus talks about the forgiveness of sins, but sin in the Gospel of John, it's not a moral or behavioral failing. It's theological. To be in sin is to be blind to the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. It's to not see God's action in the world. So when Jesus gives his spirit, he commissions this new community to continue his work of making God visible in the world. That's actually the mission of the church, to make God visible in such a way that when people see us, they see and experience God. And in the Gospel of John, what that means is that are we loving others as God loves us? Are we loving others with a love that is generous and humble and forgiving and empowering and humanizing and freeing? Are we loving others in such a way that when people see us and how we speak and how we behave and how we treat others, that they see God in us? If we are, then we are in essence forgiving sins because we are helping others See God in Christ. See God at work in the world. We are helping others experience through us a taste of God's desires for them. But if we are not living in such a way that people see God in us, in fact, if they end up seeing exactly the opposite of what God is really about, then we're basically putting up roadblocks for others experiencing God. And that's what Jesus means when he says, and you end up retaining sins. You keep people in sin, we keep people in sin, when we hinder their ability to see God in us. That's the mission of the church. To love others as God loves us so that everyone sees God in us and everyone experiences God through us. Now, how we do that is unique to every church. And that's worth the governing bodies of churches spending time on to saying, what are the unique ways we are being called to love others with the love of God? But it's also a question for each one of us because the church is not this building. It's you and it's me. So how are you loving others as God loves you? 
If your mind goes to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, that's to be understood because God talks a lot about love there, or Paul talks a lot about love there. Um, and he says, love is not envious, it's not boastful, it's not arrogant, it's not rude, it doesn't insist on its own way. We could be as right as we want, we can be doing all sorts of good deeds, but if we are not embodying that kind of love that's not irritable or resentful or insisting on its own way, then we are, as Paul says, just a noisy gong. And how many of you enjoy having just a gong hit right by the side of your head? I don't. The kind of love that Paul talks about is a way of life. It's the way we walk through this world. Think of people you know who live the kind of love Paul talks about. They're often the ones about whom people say, I never heard them say a bad word about anyone. They are those who, when you are in the presence of that person, yet there's something about them that you want. They have a, a connection with something bigger than themselves, God, we would say, that shapes them and grounds them and it draws us to them. They have a way of being both powerful and gentle at the same time. But it's also a way of life that can lead to division and conflict. Love is a verb. Remember that. Love is a verb. It's an action. Jesus showed His love by crossing boundaries, by drawing into His circle those people that others ostracized, even the good religious people of His own community. We're called to do the same to show in our actions as well in our words that love knows no boundaries. God's love is greater than anything we've ever experienced, and God's love is greater than anything we may have done that others may deem unforgivable. When we live that kind of love, the sad reality is, is we don't always make friends. In fact, sometimes we lose friends. I've lost friends over choices I've made to welcome those whom others have rejected. And it's been hard. It's been painful. They were friends that I thought were going to be friends for life. But I've never regretted my choice. My job is not to make friends in this world. It's to show God's love to others. One thing that helps us do that when love is difficult is to remember that you're not alone. Jesus promised His followers a life shaped by joy, a life grounded in the gift of His peace, and a life guided by the work of the Spirit. We are shaped by joy because Christ is risen. Death has no lasting power, as painful and as hard as any given moment may be. As difficult as it might be to love someone, or as difficult as it might be to risk losing someone because you're doing what you believe God calls you to do, I mean, that's hard. But we know that in the end, we're on the right path. And it's a path of life. We are grounded in Jesus' gift of peace, which defeats anxiety because you know He is with you. Although I will admit sometimes I prefer to grab actually a physical person and drag them along with me so I know I'm not alone. But nevertheless, when we're called to follow Christ, Christ is with us. We are never alone. We are never in this 
by ourselves. And so even if you're taking an unpopular step, even if you're uh, doing something that you are just so fraught with anxiety over because you're afraid of what it will cost you or how difficult it will be, take a deep breath. Better yet, take three deep breaths and ask God to remind you that you are filled with Christ's peace, that Christ is with you. And that's powerful. That is very powerful. And finally, we are guided by the work of the Spirit. There's a purpose to our lives that is bigger than ourselves and that has immeasurable impact on others. When someone is loved with the kind of love that is expansive and forgiving and humanizing, their lives are changed. Because a lot of people don't experience that. And when they finally do, it's like a weight has been lifted. That's a kind of love that helped one of my friends turn from being a drug dealer to a juvenile, to a counselor in a juvenile facility in California. When he realized that God's love could cover everything he'd ever done and give him a purpose bigger than himself. We are called to share God's love in such ways that people see God's expansive and forgiving and humanizing love in us. That's how, we fulfill in our, that's how we fulfill our call to follow Christ as a church and as individuals. Which brings me back to the question, how do you embody God's love in your relationships? How do you embody it in your families and among your friends? How do you embody it when you're faced with someone you don't like, when someone has hurt you? It always comes down to you and me. Because the witness of the church is only as strong as each of its individual members. I think we've all been part of groups that, uh, and sadly churches too, where the group as a whole is great, but there's this one person. And that one person could be enough to chase others away. Don't be that one person. Don't be the person people judge God negatively by. Or the church. But if you've ever been that one person, here's the good news. We are a community of grace and forgiveness. And part of living out God's love is walking with you and loving you and forgiving you and letting you have a do-over. Because that's what Jesus would do. Hopefully each of us will do that for each other. Because it's not just somebody else's job to love in action. It's your job and it's my job too. I wish I could say we were perfect at it. That we were shining examples of Christ in the world and that God's love just flows out of us like Niagara Falls, but I think I can safely say we all fail at times. That's actually why we have a prayer of confession in our worship services. It's a chance to, to lay that down, hear a word of forgiveness, and start anew. Because the forgiveness we speak, they aren't just words on paper. It's real. We mean it, and it's powerful because it's from God. 
Jesus earlier in the gospel was at the Feast of Tabernacles, and he did something profound. One of the rituals of the seven days of the feast was the priest would take water from the pool of Siloam and carry it to the city and walk around the altar and then pour water onto the altar. Sounds a little weird to us, but it was a way of remembering that God provided water for the Israelites in the wilderness when they were traveling through the desert on their way from slavery to freedom. It was also where they griped and they complained and wanted to turn back to Egypt and slavery. And it was in those contexts, in those circumstances, in those moments that God provided water from rocks. So, the, the, the Feast of Tabernacles not just symbolizes the end of the harvest, but it had come to symbolize God's provision for God's people while they were lost in their own wilderness. Jesus took that symbolic action and said, I am the water you are seeking. I am the source of life. I am the source of hope. I am the source of your future. And it's free and it never stops and you don't have to hit on rocks to get a trickle. It flows from me and you can drink as much as you want or need. Today I poured water into our uh, bowl there. That's actually the baptismal bowl that we used to use in Great Hall when we had um, our 830 worship service there. And I did that to remind us that Jesus is the source of living water and His forgiveness is always available to us. So what if every time you saw water or drank a glass of water or, or washed your hands, you first of all remember that you are loved, you are forgiven, you are washed clean and Every day, you are sent out into the world to embody that to somebody else, to share that love with somebody else. What if every time you saw water or drank water, you remembered that? Because we all forget. We get caught up in our own agendas, our pet issues, our hurt feelings, or just the long list of things we have to get done during the day. And I think we also need to be reminded that we are shaped by joy we are grounded in God's peace, and we are guided by the work of the Spirit to embody God's love in all that we say and all that we do. That's the gift that has been given to us on this Pentecost Sunday, the anniversary of the church. May we use it freely, may we use it generously, so that when people see us, they see not us, but the joyful love of God for them. Join me in living out that mission. Amen.